Welcome to Afroability, a conversation about African business and technology. Today, we're going to talk about Africa's largest innovation hubs and how they're nurturing entrepreneurship and building the African tech ecosystem. We'll focus on CC Hub and iHub as reference points. Then we'll look at different models of these hubs across the continent. And then finally, we'll end with our views on the future of innovation hubs across Africa. BMAC, how are you doing? I'm good. Life is good. How are you? I feel great. I feel like every episode I have a new nickname for you. I'll take it. I had, I had uh, somebody message and say, um, can't lose with Coos or Bank with Bank Holly. <laughs> if you know me, you know that that's my dream. My dream is to make it to a, to a, to a, to a Nigerian song. So if you're, if you're out there listening and you sing, just put my name in it. Like Burna Boy did. His check is in the mail. <laughs> I like it. Back with Bank Holly. You're, you're going to be only doing fintech, fintech startups based on that. <laughs> nice, nice. So... Why, uh, why hubs? Why, why innovation hubs? And why is this important? Why did we pick this and why are we doing this now? Yeah, why did we pick this? First of all, I think the timing is actually great that we're doing it after the EdTech episode. Because in a way, innovation hubs, aka innovation labs, innovation centers, whatever you want to call them, we'll be using the terms interchangeably. They're sort of all along the same spectrum. You can empower people, expand their skills, expand their knowledge, and then have some impact on society. So it's sort of related to EdTech, except I think it targets slightly older people and slightly people who want to do a little bit more uh, entrepreneurial stuff versus ed tech is just much more about learning skills. I've seen them being called entrepreneur support organizations. It's, it's sort of this catch-all mm. term for everything that, that mm. they do, which is provide some kind of resourcing to startups or companies or an ecosystem. Uh, I think those Makes parts sense. are important. We found just historically that ecosystems tend to have the exponential effect. Hubs tend to have eco- uh, exponential effect on, a, on an ecosystem. I think that's a super fascinating thing. It's a decentralized way to drive innovation. If you believe in top-down versus decentralized, I think ecosystems are the decentralized uh, approach to that. And even top-down innovation tends to want to drive ecosystems. Anyone who's listened to our Reliance Geo episode at the end, I'm all, I'm 100% down for bottoms-up innovation. And yeah, this is a way to spur that. If we think about this, if we take a broad lens, a lot of developing countries face a bunch of challenges, aka a bunch of opportunities. And tech entrepreneurship is it's basically our greatest problem-solving tool to address those challenges over the past couple of decades. And um, ESOs or innovation hubs are a way to encourage entrepreneurship to solve those problems. So it it makes sense. Um, I guess as we get into the nuts and bolts of it, we can talk about what the different strategies slash business models slash approaches are. But at a high level, encourage entrepreneurship. Sounds good. Sounds like a good thing. Why not? Yeah, we should even agree on what we mean when we say innovation hub. I think we have to sort of practice down on what we don't mean. I think it's, it's intentionally brought again, similarly, Primarily because it's just any kind of setup or system or physical place that exists to help more than one company. Uh, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> yeah, hopefully more than one company provide resources or access to resources. So they could either provide it directly, some of like space or facilities or compute or resources or, or talent, or they could provide it, help them be a hub to connect other people, be a hub, see what I did there. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes it's tech that could be expensive. Sometimes it's um, investors and product feedback. Sometimes it's technical talent. I think that's a exhaustive definition of an innovation hub. Right. Yeah. I love the part of the podcast when we start defining stuff because the definitions are never clear. We just try our best. So I think, yeah, the way that I would define it is pretty similar. They're like social communities that foster problem solving, innovation, and they provide a bunch of services to their members. And the services include... Um, development of new skills, aka training, relationships and networking, infrastructure, which could be a physical space, it could be electricity, it could be internet connectivity, and then access to venture funding and uh, workshops to meet other people. What I think is weird is when when looking up the definition, the infrastructure is always said to be space, like co-working space, but in the African developing market context, it's the space plus the internet plus the electricity, which I think like if you tell yeah. an American we're going to give you electricity, be like, oh, of course, you can get that anywhere. But I think it's yeah. it's more apt for what we're talking about. It's not just the space. It's the space, internet, and electricity together. Because yeah. that's not as, as Yeah, I remember I saw a quote saying that like, they're called tech hubs, but their key role is to provide steady electricity and internet access. It's right. in, in, in Africa, right. especially. It's a different yeah. different kind of model to look at it. So what we're calling innovation hubs, aka innovation labs, innovation centers, they're basically four different types. So the first types, they're called incubators. And incubators are meant to incubate new ideas. So incubate disruptive ideas to form new companies. 
The second type they're called accelerators, and accelerators are supposed to accelerate existing companies to hit the next growth curve. So typically for accelerators, the company probably already has an MVP, they've already found product market fit, they're looking to get to the next growth curve. And then there's a third piece, which is co-working space providers. So they just provide co-working space and they're not necessarily trying to help you build your business. And the fourth piece is other. Now the thing about these definitions is honestly, the words are sort of used interchangeably. Yeah. Because every once in a while, you see someone saying an accelerator, but it's a new company, incubator, existing company. And then accelerators also provide co-working space. Yeah. So, so they're definitions. But just so you know, it's probably a little bit mushy across those different yeah. categories. I didn't find them very distinctive uh, to yeah, d- distinguish other thing to help, help other people. Yeah. So right now, Bankole and I are focused on independent third-party innovation hubs. But there are also a lot of corporate hubs. So the companies themselves set up their own accelerators. So examples of those which are Africa-centric, it is an Africa podcast, is there's a Facebook Nigeria hub, there's yeah. Google Launchpad Accelerator, there's a Microsoft Development Hub in Nairobi and Lagos, there's an IBM one. So there are a lot of ones which are set up specifically by companies. And then the third perspective is there's also the government angle. Yeah. Governments also set up incubators. Now, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to say that typically ends well. It is an interesting angle because depending on the way the government sets it up, they could set it up to be run by an independent operator and it, it might as well be independent. So there are three different lenses, independents, um, governments, and corporates. They're different, they're different kinds and business models, right? Um, how how I try to split this innovation hubs and like what are different kinds of innovation hubs that exist and how do they work is I'm trying mm-hmm. to look at it from the different stages that a company is in. So if I look at pre-seed and seed. So pre-seed is, uh, so so seed capital is what you give a, an entrepreneur to start a business. Seed capital usually refers to the first capital that gets into a startup or a business. Pre-seed is before that. It's this new thing that are relatively new, that maybe seven to eight years old, last seven to eight years really blew up, which is providing support for the entrepreneur before they have the business. So seed is you have a business and I go raise seed capital because I have the business, I have the idea, maybe I have something, maybe I don't have anything else. And I go tell somebody, I want to build an app. Right. Volumide, please give me, you know, give me $20,000. Right. Let me just expand that. So for our audience who are not familiar with tech at all, let let me give you an example. So let's say there's John and John has a business to sell something. He wants to come up with a business to sell something. First of all, what probably makes sense for him to use some of his own money and time? So that's his personal sweat capital. That's the first thing. The second thing is friends and family round. So he goes to his uncle, his cousins, friends like, hey, I want to do this business. I want to get money. And then his family members may or may not give him money. So after he's done those two things, he probably needs to get, quote unquote, external capital. And then external capital is people who are going to give him money to expand his idea slash business. Then you get to pre-CT. But just to be clear, you probably need to do those two things first. It would be weird for someone to give you money if you haven't invested some of your own money or time or raised internally first. Oh, so that's the- but you see some of the, some of the pre-CT stuff is exactly that. So that's why it's very interesting. Right. So the pre-seed stuff is if you think of what kind of innovation hubs go after pre-seed businesses. So pre-seed businesses is basically like you find somebody and tell them, I think you're going to start a business or I think you should start a business. Here's some money some to cover your living expenses while they explore that. So there's a couple I'll, I'll, I'll talk about. There's an, a program. They have physical locations as well where they fund and support the entrepreneur as an employee. And then they get dibs or an option on the idea they come up with. So they get to pitch as part of that to, to the fund, to other investors who are accredited by the fund itself, and then they raise money. So examples of those would be entrepreneurial residence programs that VCs have. Major companies even have them now, where they have somebody on board who's an expert in the space, and they say, we'll pay you a salary for a year, and whatever you come up with, we will invest you know, $800,000 at 10% valuation, depending on who it is, right? right? There's something else that I found more interesting. It's something called Entrepreneur First. I don't know if you've heard about it, Illumidia. Have you heard about Entrepreneur First? No. Oh, it's the coolest thing. So Entrepreneur First tries to answer this question. They're based in London, Berlin, Singapore, India, just outside of Silicon Valley. It's not their thing. And they're trying to look, answer the question of what do entrepreneurs look like before they start successful businesses? Like who are the smartest people right. in, your, in your class in college or in your class in, in grad school? They tend to right. go into consulting or, or, um, or banking. Investment, investment banking. banking or something. So they go after those people. They reach out to them, encourage them to apply. And when you apply, you get... Um, a stipend, so two thousand pounds, depending on the country you're in, but it's about two thousand pounds a month for fourteen weeks, where they bring you, you meet a co-founder, they help you develop your idea, and then, wow. and then, wow. and then, this is the best thing. This is the best thing. You you pitch to receive funding after the fourteen weeks. So it's not a loan; you never pay back. So if you pitch and you don't get it, nothing lost. It's fourteen weeks of your life where you got paid two thousand pounds a month, and that's done. Um, if you do find something they pay you 80,000 pounds for 10% of your company. 
um, in mm. London, Paris, and Berlin. And keep in mind, you're coming in there with no idea, with no co-founder, with like, right. you know, I work in payments, I have some experience in payments type thing. Uh, put me in right. there and they pay you 2,000 pounds a month in London, Paris, Berlin, Canada, Singapore, Bangalore. So wow. it's a super fascinating okay. incentive to take a sabbatical, right? It's like take three months off and go try this thing right. out, apply and see if you find a co-founder and then they, you pitch and then they fund you. Okay. Okay. I've, I've never heard of that before. It sounds smart. Um, it's highly dependent on their uh, algorithm to figure out likelihood of success. Um, because if you give money to the people who are not likely to come up with ideas, then eventually it won't scale properly. If you, so I, I'm, I'm curious to see how they figure out the people to approach. If you show. think about it, they, they, they check for two things, uh, uh, something and edge. Like what's your edge? Like what do you know that other people don't know? Like what's your, like right. what is your competence you have that other people don't have? Right. And right. what's your background on your edge? It's two things that they check for. Um, and it's fascinating to me because they, they have been able to, they have a portfolio now of 200 companies worth oh, one, one and a half billion dollars today, paper money in VC. But to give, put it in context, their last fund was 815 million pounds. And their portfolio now is 1.5 billion. They have $300 million of exits. They were started by two, okay. two former McKinsey consultants as well. I think it's huh. fascinating because you have to believe, you have to believe that like talent, if talent is not equally geographically distributed, like the best engineers, best people with engineers, best people with potential to be engineers are not necessarily in the US or in Silicon Valley. Um, right. It's entrepreneurship also not evenly distributed. The people just go to, like you go to the best school you can get into and you get the best job you can get into. And many people have not seriously considered it. And if you de-risk right. it for the best people for three months, where it's not like they make zero, it's not mm-hmm. what they make, but they get a stipend and they have 14 weeks to try out an idea and try something. And it's very rigorous, it's very competitive. And your co-founders are also in the same program. Yeah. Right? They match people up. How do they, uh, what's the criteria to match? They have a system, up? they do training. So they have programs for those 14 okay. weeks. It's not like they, they just pay you 14 weeks and they tell you to go away. Right, right, you right. have to physically be in one of those cities to join the program. The US has a much more developed hub ecosystem, if you will, where Correct. the hubs can be super narrow, but narrow in like sector, but also narrow in like function. So you have these hubs that only do certain kind of sectors, but you have hubs that only work in a certain space. So there's one, what people call innovation studios, a couple of them in the US where the company hires founders to work on ideas. So there's just a team of people, they have product managers, they have engineers, they have um, business people, sales marketing, and they say, hmm, I wonder if there's something in medical payroll. And then they go test the ideas, validate it, and like, yo, there's something there. Then they go find somebody in a company, make him an offer, give him equity, hire him on as a founder of the business, give him equity, and then they support him to go out and build a team pretty successful. They've had some really good deals and some really good exits as well. For me, it's also been the idea that you can de-risk entrepreneurship. Like, I guess yeah. come from Nigeria, there's a there's obviously any risk anywhere in starting a business, but give you an income, give you access to investors, you know, three weeks in, three months in, to know if this is even something that they would buy. It. And then you can go back, you can have internet, you can have power, and it's, you know, funded by somebody else. It helps de-risk some of the downside of, of, of losing all your yeah. money. We should also talk about some um, more famous accelerators in other countries, like in America and Europe. So we'll talk briefly about this, and then we'll get back to the Africa angle. So I'm sure a lot of you have heard of YC, Y Combinator, and Techstars. For those of you who haven't, so YC is basically an accelerator slash incubator. Um, and the standard deal they give for YC companies is they invest $125,000 for 7% of your company. Yeah, And they have a bunch of famous companies that have exited I won't go through the list, but I'm actually curious, Bankley, do you know the top five uh, YC companies? Yeah, based on I did prepare for this podcast, dude. Uh, Airbnb, Cruise, Stripe, DoorDash, Instacart, Dropbox, Heroku. But also what's interesting, I looked up the, the YC Africa portfolio. They obviously Paystack and Floodwave are the most popular, but they have Termi, Wi-Fi.com.ng, Numi, payroll processing in Kenya, Avion in Ethiopia, drone delivery platform. Yasser, right here in Nigeria, Tambo in Kenya. They do have, they have an Africa page. They have a big Africa like um, program now. Yeah, so, so so that's cool. So if you have a smart idea, not only can you tap into the emerging innovation hubs in Africa, you can also find accelerators slash incubators overseas. So more sources of capital, more sources of learning. Great, love it. But what I I think is interesting is the the um, terms that these incubators give compared to mm. the services you get from them. So we right. said Interpreter First is 80K for 10% and YC is 125K for 7%. 80K for yeah. 80K for 10% and you have no idea or you just have an mm. idea. You've worked it for 14 yeah. weeks. 
125k for seven percent for businesses at various stages of traction because YC is super competitive. So people go there with like traction now. TechStars, which is another famous famous accelerator or incubator, is 20k for six percent with lots of fine print. It's it's fascinating to me, and I don't. If I think about the options available to entrepreneurs, that even in the West you need that connection and connectivity to find people. Um, I wonder what yeah. the rates would be like in Nigeria if at scale. Um, I, I find the numbers fascinating. I guess if you're, you're an entrepreneur with a great idea, at the end of the day, whether you're giving up 7%, 8%, 10%, the more important thing is will your business scale and be, be successful? Because, yeah, you get some dilution, but it's not that significant yeah. in terms of how much you're giving up. Alumni referred to this earlier, but I think one other split to think about hubs is private hubs versus public government hubs. People yes. don't think about it or give it enough credit, but there's private, which is VCs, companies, you know, innovation labs, whatever you call it. Like, so Microsoft Accelerator, Facebook has one in Nigeria, things like that. There's public ones. There's, there's Kerala Startup Mission. There's Station F in France, pretty big, like re- yes. repurposed wo- real station for startups run by the government. It, it's, I think it's beautiful. Those are super like interesting to me um, because it puts some of the things that Lundi talks about on its head about government driving innovation itself. and. Mm. You know, early days for Station F in particular, but let's see how how those turn out and the ability of government to foster an ecosystem around a massive funded space. Right, right. And government's participation can take different forms. One of it is just we are going to set up the initial infrastructure and we're going to leave all the operations and management to a third party. That's different from the government is going to actively hire its own employees to manage yeah. the ongoing operations, which sounds, oh my God, that sounds a little bit tricky. So we've we've talked about, Olumde, we've talked about different kinds Slice yeah. and dice it different ways. Private, public, precede, yeah. seed, incubator versus yes. accelerator and stuff. As which ones do you think are more interesting to you within the Africa context? Just we'll get to it in a bit more detail later, but which ones do you think are much more interesting and why? In general, Africa has a problem just nurturing entrepreneurship. So I think what's more interesting for me is the earlier in the entrepreneurship journey they go, the more earlier the more relevant it is for African companies. And what I mean by that is it's not like we have that many successful series D, E, F companies. Like most of them are still early or don't exist. So early in the funnel sounds like it'd be good or better because of the kind of challenges we face. But I wonder if you have a different and opinion. No, I, I I agree. I think it's it's more the it's more the basics than anything else. Yes. You want to increase the funnel, um, top exactly. of the funnel, right? To and then hopefully that trickles down. If you have two hundred yes. more people trying, you have three more successful businesses. Yes. And the reason why it's multifaceted, it's hard to increase the funnel because part of it is getting the people who have the right knowledge, interest, and motivations. And we already we had, we did the EdTech episode uh, two weeks ago. And yeah, the education aspect is difficult. I still think even without education, this is sort of like a backstop to still encourage people to have impact. So even if you dropped out of school, let's say you dropped out of senior secondary school or high school, whatever. It's still great we have entrepreneurship innovation hubs because yeah. why not? You can still have an impact and you can still make a difference. So it's, it's mm-hmm. not, it doesn't solve the education issues, but at least an additional option for people to impact society, even if they haven't been quote unquote fully educated. That's true, not just for technology businesses, like for all kinds of businesses. You think of the role of government is to, or the role of government is to make sure that it's clear and easy for yes. to increase the top of funnel for people to try and fail um, yes. because it makes the system yes. better. We talk about some of the potential downsides and risks of innovation hubs because right now it sounds like we're pretty bullish on it. It sounds great. It sounds super positive. Should we talk about some yeah, of the I challenges hear. I they want face? To Tell me. Okay. Yeah. So the challenges they face, funding is by far the biggest problem, of course, because if you are reliant on donor funding, which by the way, uh, 40-ish percent of the hubs in Africa rely on donor funding because they're not for profit, yeah. it's going to be an issue to get people who keep on donating money to you if you're not giving them something tangible in return. And then the second issue, which I was actually surprised to find, is a lot of the hubs complained about government overregulation. I would not have thought that would have been the second issue. If, if you'd asked me two months ago, I'd have said maybe hiring the right people or getting enough entrepreneurship or ideas getting traction. We should also probably then take a step back and think about like, okay, why do they even exist in the first place? Is that like, what right. is the job that they're performing and why, like, I, I have intuition for why they exist um, in the US, why why Combinator exists and why does it exist? Why is it necessary in Africa and do they perform the same kinds of jobs? Yeah, I, at a high level, they are supposed to provide the same type of job. The problem is for this flywheel to get into effect, you, get, you need to get into a place where you're investing in companies, your equity is increasing, you're getting money by secondary sales of those yeah. companies, and then it's just a flywheel. But these companies, most of them don't have, most innovation hubs don't have enough exits to cover their payroll. So it needs to be reliant on like donors. And when we say donors for our audience, so here are the largest corporate partners for uh, innovation hubs in Africa, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, IBM, Standard Bank, 
MTN, Deloitte, MasterCard, Barclays, and Access Bank. So it's big tech companies in America, big banks in Africa, and big telcos in Africa. Those three groups are 90% of the funders. Yeah, I think that's one of the, the interesting things. If we think about like what does a what problem does a hub solve, especially in the African context, a hub solves problems around facilities and infrastructure access. After Unilag, I started a business with friends. We used to do IT services for small businesses, um, oh. and we, we would charge a we would charge a flat flat price, and we come and fix whatever is wrong with your your IT, you know, at, at for the flat price, unlimited cost. Obviously, do not know anything about union economics or or profitability, to be honest, or even money, to be honest. Um, so obviously it didn't work out. But one of the challenges was we didn't have an office. So we paid uh, some other startup that was friends with somebody else I work with for, for us to have a table in the place that they also rented from somebody else who wasn't using the uh, space. So we had a table in this other company's office and we had to be quiet at the table. So when we wanted to have discussions, we have to go outside. But we needed the office because... We didn't have um, internet access was spotty at home if we had it. Power was definitely an issue uh, at home if you had it. And and at the time, there wasn't a lot of workspaces or hubs or that kind of thing. But I imagine if if there was one, right, that's exactly the problem we wanted to solve. Where we can pay by the hour, by the month, and we don't have to get into a, yeah. a year-long lease for something that we we're doing yeah. just after uni, waiting for NYC. And I think that's that's I think that explains a bit how what kind of problems they solve. They make it easier for you to just do your work. Like if we needed to fix people's iPhones and stuff, we need power to do that. And we just couldn't, yes. we couldn't do that at home because we didn't have right. internet to download the images um, to flash the phones or we didn't have internet yeah. to or power access for that as well. It takes me back to what I said at the end of the EdTech episode. Even though EdTech is important, a lot of the key challenges EdTech face are infrastructure slash access issues. And in a way, innovation hubs help solve some of those access issues for entrepreneurs. So for people who haven't listened to the other episode, please go listen, by the way, affordability.com slash edtech. But some of the key access issues are electricity infrastructure, smartphone adoption, and internet access. So if hubs help solve some of those issues, maybe not the smartphone piece, because yeah. we do have smartphones, that's in a way encouraging more people to, to innovate, which sounds good. Yeah. I will say one other problem, which... I was surprised to see a lot of people saying innovation hubs. They said, oh, there's a high level of unemployment in Africa and Nigeria and a bunch of countries and innovation hubs that help solving unemployment. And I was like, well, I don't know. That's, that may not be the way that I would frame it. Second order impacts, maybe. Exactly. Maybe second or third order impact. It's more like they're trying to solve problems that drive societies forward. And some of the problems they solve may create more jobs, but there are a bunch of problems you can solve that may not. Yeah, I mean, the hubs will have employees, right? It's not the worst thing. I also think- Right, right. But, but, but they're not going to have that much. Like, it's a startup, right? The startup, most startups are, funded, are started by really, really small teams. Yeah, I guess. Your startup's not going to have 900 people. <laughs> the, the, the other piece is I, I don't want to get too hung up on the infra piece because it really depends on where you are. Yeah. Like if you work in tech, people work in tech always say there's no pipeline problem. And it's like, yeah, because you already work in tech. Right. I think there are problems at different stages, but my intuition is still that the, the biggest problem is the top of the funnel problem versus for those that exist, how do we get them the right funding? How do we get them access to the right people? Because we're seeing yeah. st startups without hubs for, in some cases raise money directly through Twitter, through and meet out, reaching out to entrepreneurs, through angel right. investors in the West who are hungry for like some kind of geographic diversification. So I do, the infrastructure is not the only problem that the hubs solve. From my perspective, though, I think it's the biggest problem. I think it's the biggest um, choke point. But I definitely, if I look at like access to investors, training to pitch, um, uh, those things are just not at the level they should be. Being able to yeah. tell a story of your business, being able to tell yes, a story yes. of growth of your business. I think those things are not, they're not intuitive things and they're very hard to learn and they are specialized yeah. skills. You don't want to treat them as like, oh, I'm just going to tell them what I'm doing. It's like, no, right. that's not what you're doing. You're selling a story. You're selling a promise. You're painting a version of the future that makes money for everybody who's in this meeting. And yeah. you have to learn and practice how to do that. And you need reps. You need people around you to teach you how to do that. You can't do that, get that kind of information in the hub. Like, how do you know what a VC is going to be looking at in your SaaS business, software as a service business? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let, let's get into it. Let's talk about hubs in Africa. Let's give some um, information and data, and then we'll come back into our discussion. So based on some great research by Britter Bridges and Afri Labs, I'll put that in the show notes. There were, about, there were over 600 innovation hubs in Africa at the end of 2019, and that's up from 400 in 2018. So crazy growth rate. And at the end of 2019, the countries with the largest number of hubs, no surprise, Nigeria, South Africa, Egypt, Kenya. 
Uh, I guess that's like a constant theme throughout this podcast. Nigeria, South Africa, Kenya, always coming up. So Nigeria had about 90, South Africa 78, Egypt 56, Kenya 50. Uh, um, what are some interesting facts uh, about all these innovation hubs across Africa? Most of them are super small scale. So over 60% have fewer than 10 employees. Going back to what I was saying before about talking about unemployment. Almost half of them are organized as nonprofits. So they're super uh, dependent on donor funding, which is what we we're talking about earlier. And another interesting fact is about 100 hubs have shut down over the past three to five years, primarily due to a pivoting or a lack of funds or expiration of mandates, which I laughed when I, I heard the phrase. Yeah, you know, expiration of mandate. you know what that means? It means the money dried up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, means, it means that, no, I mean, that's a bit cynical, but it means that like hope, in theory, it could mean that they were set up, you know, to, to incubate this couple of businesses for two years because of this policy right. change and then they disappeared, yeah. but... Yeah, it, it's a bit sad some of them gone a bit as but I'm not that sad. Like Darwinian evolution, it went from 400 to 600. The the Kager is super high, so I'm I'm optimistic that they're they're doing things. I'm much more concerned about the business model and how they can do something that's sustainable. Because as soon as one hub finds a sustainable business model, it's easy for it to be replicated. I'm I'm just always wary of businesses that rely on um, donations as a general as a general. Theme. What what so. what would you say like based on your research the different business models you've seen uh in the African context which of them which what kind of business models have you seen I feel like okay this, so so the business models that currently exist we spoke about the uh, donors number one number two is they charge some of their members for specific features but hmm. the amount they charge is is, is very low of course because most members don't have that much money so I would say it's by far those two things um there are a bunch of them which had. They had other, I'll call it other, but the other is like equity investments and funding. But since they don't have massive exits, I'm pretty sure this third category is super low. So they say they're doing equity funding, but apart from iHub and CC Hub, we're going to talk about soon, they don't have large exits. So the value of their investments will probably be low. It doesn't matter if you're innovation hub, you can't rely on the valuations paying your funds because there aren't that many big companies, but over time it may change. You have to go build them, Illuminae. That's why I'm here. Hit right, me up, infoofferability.com. All right, just, if you're looking for a co-founder, Illuminate is your guy. Yeah, that's. we'll talk about that at the end. <laughs> should, we, should, should, should we talk about the story of iHub and CC Hub and why we wanted to talk about them? Yeah, let's do that. Let's talk about iHub. So I'm back on iHub. iHub was started by Eric Herzman in Kenya. Of course, iHub is Kenya and it was started in 2010. Eric Herzman was also co-founder of Shahidi and BRCK Brick, which was a big part of the EdTech podcast we recorded a few weeks ago where we talked about it using to provide internet access in different places. So somebody who grew up, um, so somebody who's been very close to the ecosystem and has been around there for a while. I think, Eric, just some more background on the on the founder of of iHub um, to set some context as to why he did it and, and what makes sense. So first of all, I think he started with about four co-founders. He started with Shahidi in 2007. So Ushahidi is this nonprofit uh, that software, that creates software for people to, crowdsource different kinds of reports. I think it became used, it was used for the 2007 elections in Kenya. So crowdsource reports of election violence has been used by the UN in response to the Haiti earthquake to monitor the Nigerian elections, the Nepalese army in 2015 in Louisiana, in different places. It's um, It's been really successful and really useful, but it's a, a non-profit. It's also been used in Egypt as for something called HarassMap, which helps women report on sexual harassment in Egypt. The interesting thing about Ushahidi is, is, is because it was crowdsourced, it was very helpful and much better at reporting acts of violence as it happened compared to like news or reporters or the traditional um, sources of reporting. Um, so he did that in 2007, moved to the US for, moved back to the US for a little bit. In 2009, he moved back to Kenya. I think so bang on Eric also, he went to school in, in Kenya and Sudan, uh, went to US for college and later returned to Kenya. When he moved back to Kenya in 2009, in 2010, he set up IHOP. Apparently, the story goes that IHOP came out of conversations with in the tech ecosystem. So after starting with Shahidi, talking about how the tech entrepreneurs or the tech people in, in Nairobi at the time needed to have a space. And because he already had Ushahidi, he was able to take that and raise money and then set up IHOP uh, very quickly in, in 2010. So he set up IHOP. IHOP, in reality, is a co-working space and an incubator at the same time. So he does both both of those things. It, prov it provides a space where members can access mentorship, business support services, set up opportunities, workshops, events. Um, the last metric I saw about this was that 
it was 70% self-funding through his consultant services and, and 30% through events or corporate partnerships. They do have a lot, a good number of sponsors. I think that's consistent with many of the hubs we've seen across Africa. So Facebook, Google, Oracle, Oracle Safaricom, Seacom, uh, many more. They have directly or indirectly, as they say, nurtured a number of startups. I think some of the more popular ones are, or popular ones if you're in Kenya or close to the ecosystem, something called Copo Copo, which is a system behind Lipa Na Mpesa. I'm definitely butchering this. So if you want to give me less in pronunciations, <laughs> email us. Copo uh, Copo helps SMEs accept mobile money payments. There's another one called Total Health, which provides uh, maternal information for expecting parents. So they have incubated a number of setups, none that are immediately like massive consumer setups that you immediately come to mind if you think of the ecosystem, but there are a number of them. The, the number I've seen, I've seen 150 to 200 different startups um, that they've incubated or helped grow in iHelp. That, and that's how they ended up as one of the more popular, more famous um, tech hubs in, in Africa and, and definitely out of Kenya. Right. And Bankola is downplaying it a little bit. They were what? basically the first they were the first major innovation hub in the whole of Africa. And they're probably the most popular and they've had the largest impact based on the number of entrepreneurs incubated. Maybe not Dollar Valley, which we'll talk about later, but pretty pretty famous in terms of innovation hubs. I hope it's particularly well known because yeah. they're basically regarded as kicking off the innovation hub movement. So because they were the first and pioneers, a lot of later innovation hubs have similar features to iHub. Okay, now changing gears to talk about CC Hub. I'm, I'm gonna give background on Bosun Tijani first. I like to call our entrepreneurs superheroes and then we'll talk about the company he founded CC Hub later. Okay, so Bosun, here, here's some background. He was born into the Agege bread bakery industry. And for our what? listeners who are, who are not f familiar, okay, Agege is basically a city in Lagos. They're pretty famous for their bread, right? And he was born into a family who was heavily involved in the baking industry. So I was like, oh, that's interesting and he attributes growing up here and witnessing all the baking innovation as the thing that got him interested in uh, technology and ecosystem so pretty cool, cool background um eventually he studied economics at the university of joss he worked for a series of tech companies most notably a delivery tech company called delivery king and then he worked at the international trade center to help farmers in different African countries sell their goods online. So you can already see uh, bits and pieces of someone who has some ecosystem experience, some tech experience, eventually moved to the UK to study information systems and management uh, work, work business school. He had a job where he helped EU universities get funding for their research and advise them on how to use their research to solve EU problems. So just to emphasize this, he helped European universities get funding and advise them on how to apply their research to solve EU problems. So you can already see this is quite similar to what CC Hub does. CC Hub helps African startups and gives them advice on how to apply their startup ideas to solve Africa problems. So eventually he said, okay, he's going to move back to Nigeria. He moved back to Nigeria and he started CC Hub, aka Co-Creation Hub, somewhere around 2010, 2011. And it was the first major innovation center in Lagos. So it was launched after iHub Bankole spoke about. Nice. Um, so this is now, it's basically the uh, Nigerian version of, of iHub. And the original goal, but he said, better. was to support... <laughs> cough, cough. <laughs> no, no comments on that. So he, his stated original goal was to support everyday young people who believe they can make a difference with their ideas. I was watching one of his interviews. He actually said something pretty smart. He said, people that were very connected or were returning from America or England could easily get funding because they already had connections or they already had internet and technology access. Whereas younger people, grassroots people, found it much more difficult. So Bankoli mentioned something in our Jumia episode. Bankoli said, for the people around 2010, 2012, they were all connected or were coming from MIT, Harvard, whatever, they yeah. can easily get funding. So I think this is a great supplement to that. This is for other people who aren't coming from abroad, who are just you know local people trying to make a difference. I think his story is fascinating. I was very, I was interested when he started the business. I was one of the people that was super like, this is a hard problem. And I don't see I don't see a solution or the way out, but I've been definitely been like definitely on his side. I don't think there's there's a lot of things that couldn't have happened without a place like CC Hub being like a central location. I think that's just me, my reflection. And I was not always as bullish about it that I can be honest to say that. What, what, what were you not not bullish? Because I think it's a very hard problem and it's unclear to see who pays and who the winner is. Right? Yeah, um and, and go back to the business model and like people have to pay yeah. for space. Like that's hard. Like that's super hard. Yeah. Uh, uh, or people have to pay to join a community to meet other people. Like, uh, 
you know like i i I was, this was many years ago, and I obviously did not yeah, know anything. And yeah, you were a hater. You were a hater. No big, no big deal. I was a hater. Wow. Okay. Yeah, but yeah, I can, I, I, I can be self-critical <laughs> enough to admit that I was wrong um, about right. it. And it's been, it's been largely successful. Like, Mark Zuckerberg visited in 2016. Like, it's, yeah. They own the narrative. They definitely own the narrative. And listening to Bolson tell the story... It's clear that he didn't really see uh, CC Hub as a massive unicorn revenue profit generating business. The way he describes it is more of a social enterprise ecosystem development type thing. It's it's very great. And another thing he always emphasizes, which is, by the way, if anyone knows Boston, email us info.affability.com. We'd love to have a longer uh, interview with him. Another thing he also emphasizes is it's not necessary for us to wait for the governments as young people in Africa. Mm. And it's not necessary for us to wait for bigger international tech companies because those bigger national tech companies, they have a lot of problems they're trying to solve. So if you look at their, their priority list, Africa is probably there, but probably wouldn't be close to the top. So I love yeah. the fact that he's focusing on like, don't wait for the government, don't wait for national tech companies. And how can Africans solve their own problems, especially Africans who know the market inside out? So um, I think it's very, very laudable what they did. That's what I, but also I think many people missed at the beginning is it's easy to think of everything as a commercial enterprise. It has to be a commercial enterprise. Like, of course it's a commercial enterprise. But when the goal is very different, it doesn't compute, or it did not compute to me many years ago. And I think, to yeah. your point about hearing you speak about it, it just changes like, aha, I see what the goal is and I didn't understand this well enough and I was talking out my ass without knowing anything right. about it. Right, right. And I think the thing about commercial enterprises is, if you have enough headroom initially, you can ev eventually morph it into a commercial enterprise. And I think being a commercial enterprise will give you more staying power which actually goes on to the next thing they did. In 2016, they launched their own investment subsidiary and it's called Growth Capital. So please check it out, gc.fund. So no yeah. .com, gc.fund. And it's interesting because Bosons actually says there's no bigger seed investor in Africa. <laughs> so I, I, uh, he said, if, if, any, uh, if anyone has information, please email him. But as far as he's concerned, they're the biggest seed investor in the whole of Africa. So he's referring to CC Hub and, and their fund. Like and biggest so by you... number of deals or biggest by... Ticket, ticket size or... He, he did not clarify, but I found it interesting that he would emphasize that, which basically tells me that in addition to their initial mission, they're having much more of a commercial focus to invest in startups, get equity, and like see how those grow. So that, that links to what you were saying, Bankoli, about eventually becoming more commercial to have more staying power. It also makes sense because what happens when you, you are CC Hub is that you start to get deal flow. Like whoever's working mm -hmm. on the next thing is coming to your office mm -hmm. for internet access and to hang out with people... Uh, yeah. They have all kinds of events or workshops to meet people. Mark Zuckerberg gives a talk there. You go attend that. So you have deal yeah. flow. You know who's working on stuff. You know who's working on payments. And then you're like, hey, you guys are raising, maybe? I can't wait till the episode when we talked about. So just a very, very interesting background. And talking about some of their successes, they have started to have some successful startups because they've been in business for so long. So I'll hit on a few briefly. Some of these companies here, we may actually do specific episodes on them. Some of them are quite interesting. So first of all, I'll talk about budget. Budget is a fiscal transparency project, is what they call it. And basically, the problem they're trying to solve is a lot of citizens, specifically African citizens, they don't understand the way the government is spending their money. And if citizens understood better about the way governments were spending their funds, they could be more critical and actually have better, more informed discussions with the government about how to change their spending. So I think it's interesting. Uh, for people who are in America, if you go to usafacts.org, Steve Ballmer's website, it's actually pretty similar to that, except this is much more of a tool versus a website. So budget, B-U-D-G-I-T. So not E-I-T. Definitely look cool. up. It's actually really, really cool, especially because... The way the idea started and the way the idea was incubated by CC Hub is one of those things where I doubt if it would have existed without CC Hub. So pretty cool. Second thing, and this is probably a future episode, LifeBank, L-I-F-E Bank. The problem they're trying to solve is if you're a hospital in Nigeria, when uh, a patient has a problem, let's say the patient, has, uh, the patient needs a, a blood infusion, the nurses would literally go and buy blood at the moment when the patient needs it, which is obviously <laughs> a bit risky. You're taking a bunch of, like, it, it's, it sounds not smart, but it's probably, it's not the best thing, especially if you're going to buy it from a place that's pretty far away. So what LifeBank does is they deliver a bunch of medical supplies. They first of all start with blood, of course, but they deliver medical supplies to hospitals using technology and a connective infrastructure and a distribution platform to make it easier and faster. It makes a bunch of sense, and I love it. We'll probably do a dedicated episode on them and also talk about them in our health tech episode coming up. I think those are the kind of stories that you want to hear about what an entrepreneur does. It's like, if I have an idea, like founder sees a problem and goes ahead to try to resolve it, and it's actually saving lives with something like LiveBank. Like, where do I start from? Yeah, you go to the hub. 
you meet people and talk to people, you figure out what you need to build, you figure out somebody who can build a website, you figure out somebody who can give you seed capital, you figure out somebody who can help you navigate towards Series A, Series B, you figure out somebody who can help you do sales. You actually are able to do that versus calling everybody you know, and if your network is not that strong, right? you're back to where you started. That's, I think that's the point of, that's the problem that Hub solves in, in a place like Nigeria. So those are the two major companies. There ha- are a few others. I'll there quickly rattle through these. There is uh, Mamalet, which is a startup that reduces child and maternal mortality. I found this out a few days ago. I was surprised. Tech Cabal, which is a pretty famous African media company, yeah. um, was actually uh, started in CC Hub. Some of the early Andela team was kicked off in CC Hub and a few others I'll skip through. So there are, there are just a, a bunch of stories. I would yeah. spend 30 minutes just talking about some, some of the companies that have come out of CC Hub. Moving on, we want to talk a little bit about the acquisition of iHub. So in 2019, September, CC Hub acquired iHub. So it's cool. In a way, it's sort of like a Beyonce, uh, Jay-Z marriage because it's, it's the two what? biggest innovation. You that, that's that? a great comparison, right? How, it's the two how biggest long were you waiting hubs. to say that? Did you have that in your notes? Like Beyonce, Jay-Z, That's This is it. This is the two biggest innovation hubs getting together. It's okay. fabulous. Fine. Like it was, it was, it's basically the biggest marketing push. I saw, even even though I wasn't reading about Innovation Hubs, even I heard about this because yeah. it was actually like a really big, big deal. And I think what so are too. the takeaways from the, from, from the acquisition? I hope remains completely independent. They keep their brand. It's still run by the same CEO slash MD. Uh, CC Hub with Bossoon, they run it. And iHub becomes their entry point into Kenya, and it supports some of their existing Kenyan efforts. So the quote Bossoon said after the acquisition is, the acquisition was done open quotes, to create a robust platform that's capable of attracting the best resources and partnerships and to accelerate the application of technology, innovation, and economic prosperity for the whole of Africa. So a lot of words, but basically we're combining with this other big companies to drive our efforts forward. Can I, so, can I, can I summarize those words for you? I have two. Please. Deal flow. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, to end on CC Hub, Today, they have about 90-ish people. They're still growing. They still have their growth capital fund, and they continue to be an example. And a lot of other innovation hubs refer to CC Hub as uh, the thing that motivated them to, to get started. So yeah. that's the story of CC Hub, a wonderful, wonderful story. I also think if you look at hubs in general, right, as we research this, as I research it, Anthony Holumde things, I struggle to find famous examples of startups, like even the biggest startups in Africa. I couldn't find examples that came out of a hub or an innovation hub. They tend to be like lone mm-hmm. entrepreneurs or something or the, other, or the other. They've been around for a while. So if you think we're missing right. something, um, please just email us at info.com. Um, it's something that we feel strongly about. Like, I think the hub model is is great. It's probably like many of the things we talk about becoming a trend as early days for this as well. Right, right, right. The only example we found was one I said a few minutes ago, the Andela one, which yeah. I didn't know until he said it in one of his interviews. But he emphasized it was the initial team. So it wasn't like they did the full incubation there. Yeah. So I think he, he left pretty quickly after they got up, they hired the first couple of people. Outside of this too, there are lots of hubs in Africa. Oh, there are a lot, everywhere. Like 658 yeah. or 648 yeah. or something or 650. Yeah. It's something a crazy like high number. More than 600. There are just so many. It's like Nigeria, South Africa, Egypt, Kenya, Morocco, Tunisia, yeah. government-owned, private-owned, Cisco, Microsoft, IBM, Facebook, across different parts of the country. Bongo Hive in Zambia. It's just like a, it's a long laundry list of major African tech, tech hubs. If you think there's one we should have talked about, again, email us. Um, but yeah. Please, please let us know. Yeah. We're not going to go through the full laundry list. What we'll just talk about now is our observations yeah. of looking across all these different uh, tech hubs, innovation hubs across Africa. And one of the few things, yeah. what are the few things we're noticing? So the first thing that I'm noticing is there's a big trend towards forming alliances. And I don't mean alliances like CCL, buy and I hope. I mean alliances like they are independents, but they're trading best practices, they're trading knowledge, and they're avoiding repetitive tasks. Yeah. So that was pretty cool to see. And I'm going to add a picture and a link in the show notes of some of the, the alliances. One of the, th- yeah, one of the things that I, I found is they all focus on the infrastructure piece first. So, For sure. so it's like it's a co working space first, or literally only a co working space that's lead space in Nigeria. There's a couple of them in Nigeria as well. There's worker.ng, there's a couple of them in Lagos I can think about last time I was around. But infrastructure piece is the first thing they focus on. Partly because one, it's easiest to directly monetize. So you can have the space track for the space, have the Wi-Fi charge for the Wi-Fi. 
it also solves in some of these markets, uh, African market solves the most pressing problems, which is again, mm-hmm. infrastructure, like we said, like where do you have a place yeah. that's always gonna have power, always gonna have internet, open 24 seven in some cases, right? And you mm-hmm. can go there and you can just be there and work through the night, which is very hard to find or very hard to do. That's a, that's yeah. a second a second other trend I've, I've seen in this area. Yeah. Uh, another trend that I noticed was over 40% of them take equity stakes in the startups they support. And the first one I looked at this data, I was like, hmm, is that even a trend? I would have expected it to be closer to 100%. Yeah. Um, but the reason it's 40% is similar to what Bankoit was saying. They're mostly focused on space and yeah. infrastructure provision. And I don't think um, they don't have enough of them offering different services to actually take equity stake and startup. But like, if you're going to take an equity stake, you probably need to provide services to yeah. that. And the funny thing is, I don't think many of them even have credible business models. So the, a lot of them are reliant on external funding, like like you talked about yes. earlier. And right. because even though they have good businesses, not a big portfolio. Hmm. The final piece though, that I thought was interesting is it's male dominated. You don't think about that much hmm. if you're a man, but um, there's a report, there was a report on IHOP's members saying it's 84% male and 16% female. You know, it's oh not—it's not clear what conclusions you can draw from that, but you know. Well, but is, is it not clear? It's clear. No, the biggest conclusion is they're not doing enough to attract the female part of the population. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not oh, 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 yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think I was more leaning towards like why, why that is, ah, okay, why that got exists. It, got it. Got it. Um, oh, it's absolutely clear. And that, it's the kind of thing where it's like, eh, why is that, and why is that not more of a problem or more? Maybe it is. Um, but I'm yeah. very curious about like about things like that. Yeah, how do you... no, I'm very curious about that too. In fact, we have a future episode sometime in 2021 where we're going to focus on just female entrepreneurship because it's linked to many issues. It's linked to education we spoke about two weeks ago. Yeah. It's linked to some latent sexism happening in the industry yeah. and just a bunch of things. Yeah. So interesting topic in and of itself. It's a bit unfortunate. Hopefully we can we can all get better. I, I can't wait for that one. That one I'm interested in. I'm interested yeah. in all our episodes, but that one in particular. <laughs> uh, one thing, one thing for us to talk about is because so many African innovation hubs are focused on providing co-working space, COVID-19 is probably going to inf- impact them more. Um, let's see how that all evolves. Yeah. Hopefully, as we all make progress and yeah. hopefully COVID vaccine, a COVID vaccine comes up at some point, it's a, they, they may be fine in the long term, but in the short to medium term, they're going to be hurt by that. We have to get somebody on and tell us about it. This is something that is actually evolving right now. Um, right. I would like to hear like what is happening today and how you're managing with people when in space and is it open and how do you, because I saw for Station F in France, they have all kinds of COVID protocol. They had to redesign the space, um, mm. uh, set all kinds of rules, is mask on in- indoors the whole time, things like that. Um, but that's a government and that's like a massive multi-acre space in, in, in France, right? In Paris. So just outside Paris. So that's, that's one of the things that, I'm curious how that changes uh, for right. CC Hub or IHOB or any of the Bongo Hive in Zambia or anywhere else. Right, right. I'm optimistic that it'll encourage the innovation hubs to provide more quote-unquote value-added services on top of the space. Um, and it'll just make them move more in that direction. I'm pretty sure a lot of the innovation hubs are already moving in that direction. We yeah. offer you co-working space plus X plus Y plus Z. But I think it will encourage them to focus more on the X, Y, and Z, not just the space. Because now they don't have any choice. Because not that many people want to be in a confined yeah. space with COVID. Well, if you have more information, please email us, infoadaffability.com, to understand yeah. if you're working in an innovation hub, what are the mitigation practices you're putting in place to avoid the COVID-19 impact on your business? Yeah. I mean, like, how is it impacting co-working spaces? I see um, a lot of right. a lot more ads from co-working spaces like in, in, in Seattle, for example, because nobody's even trying to go there or co- co-work yeah. with new people every day. Woo, yeah. that's sick. That's scary in times of COVID, right? Um, so I'm curious on okay. how that changes the business model. Yes. Should we do our summary and combine that with a view of how innovation hubs can spur entrepreneurship? Yeah, let's let's combine it. Let's combine it. I worry that I will sound like a broken record a lot on this podcast is two things that sincerely always come out of my notes. One is it's early and two, we need a new business model. Cop out. Always a cop out. Your summaries are always It's super easy. I just copy and paste it's early. notes every t- time. T- tell us what you think. We all know it's early. Give us your deep insights. Um, thank you. <laughs> um, no, I think that innovation hubs specifically are super necessary. You need them to create density. You need them to allow for cross-pollination. You need to raise your average up so good things happen and your serendipity is um, is strong. Uh, mm-hmm. I had uh, this quote that says, don't don't marry for money. Go to where rich people are and marry for love. <laughs> um, <laughs> go to where smart people are and find your co-founder. Like That's what you want to do. Go to where entrepreneurs are and build your business. 
um, and raise right. the average and raise the probability of you having like a chance positive encounter where people say like, oh, I can't believe I saw, I saw Bill Gates in the elevator. Like, yeah, because you guys work <laughs> Sorry, in the same I have, building. I have an off-topic diversion. One of the funniest lines I ever heard like 10 years ago was people always saying, oh, marry someone you love, marry someone you love. But yeah, I said, no, make sure you marry someone that loves you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I was like, okay, that's, that's funny. Anyway, you were saying. That's somebody who's been through two divorces. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> back to back to back to innovation back to hubs. That's it. So it's necessary. We've sort of established that we need them for that density. The flip side that really gets to me is this idea of the mod- business model has to be different. You have to de-risk it. If I think about something like Entrepreneur First in Nigeria, like there's entrepreneurs working in like Access Bank or GT Bank who know payments back and forth. I've never thought about starting a business. It's too risky. They have a wife and two kids. Like, mm-hmm. what if you can tell them you take three months off? and work for us, or we have an innovation studio where we even pay you, we get a payments guy, get a logistics guy, get a bunch of people, and we use that to incubate yeah. and test different ideas for the payments guy to go run it and the logistics guys go run it, for example. I think those are the kind of models that we need to see more because the cost of living and the cost of labor is so low, there's a leverage where capital is what's expensive, and you can use that capital to generate ideas that didn't have exponential impact. That's the part that gets right. me most excited about it. It's like, what can we do outside mm-hmm. of the hub in that like who are the best engineers in Nigeria and why are they not working in a hub? If they're working for a company, mm-hmm. why are they not working in a, in a startup hub on an idea or mm-hmm. validating and testing ideas? That's the part that gets me um, pretty excited. The business model mm-hmm. innovation and the potential for that beyond what exists today. The final piece, if I think about hubs, is what takes it to be successful or hubs are successful. They have to have narrow programs. This general dual or hubs are not as effective it helps at the beginning, sort of an ecosystem, which is basically where CCOB was or even is now, where you have to do everything. But over time, you find that the most successful successful um, start, startups, VC funds, ER programs are those that do like consumer or something or the other, right? It's a yeah. very different, very different yeah, finance yeah. enterprise. Finance enterprise. Although you could also be generalists and then have specific people on the team that have. Yeah like vertical knowledge and you could solve it that way right yeah the, the challenge is that that's harder to do um it's harder to actually execute because you're basically you're basically 15 different firms in one like that's more expensive to execute um and mm. i don't know that the ecosystem mm. is is thriving enough to have that specificity or maybe it is or maybe it should be or maybe nobody's looking at it closely enough is why it isn't maybe somebody says fintech is a good one for a candidate for one but why not logistics yeah. why not have 25 logistics companies um, because they're different layers of the stack or payments companies, different layers of the stack. I think that's, yeah. that's something I, I, I think about uh, uh, quite a bit. The other piece came from another podcast I listened to is around these hubs, like the geography is not the deciding factor versus the sector. Um, uh, so, so basically for a hub to be limited to a particular geography, yes, you need the physical space for a second, but given COVID, you have to provide some service and not physical space, um, at least for, for time as they had to mm-hmm. initially during lockdown is how do you provide the same services to neighboring countries, um, to make it a bigger market. If you do payments in one country, you have some expertise, like it makes more sense for you to do payments in, in Kenya and then payments in Tanzania than for you to do payments in Kenya and logistics in Kenya. Um, right, and, right. and that, that, that is, that make, that would make a big difference in African markets as far as creating a sizable market, creating narrow expertise and making that worthwhile and profitable because the, the, the country constructs, just given tooling, communication, similarity of policies and cultures in some countries, in some, uh, proximate regions, there's some opportunity there. So summary, I think it's great. I think it's necessary. It has many benefits. I'm heavily interested in business models for the hubs themselves, what they do. I'm also interested in like, it's called specialization of the hubs. And even mm-hmm. those markets are small, but specialization across uh, different regions, you start to see trends. Like if you're building something here, you want to be building the same thing in another market versus uh, supporting building a different business in, in this market. Easier said than done. Mm-hmm. I don't have a hub. Mm-hmm. So, definitely, so, definitely. Yeah. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet, right? Not yet. That's my, that's my, my, uh, my, my big, wow. my big idea. Okay. Okay. My summary. That was that was very interesting. I'm still sort of digesting it. My summary is, in general, I'm a big fan of innovation hubs, innovation labs, whatever you want to call them. And I think the reason I'm a big fan, the more I read about it, the more I learned about it, is it's basically because they're experiments. And the thing about experiments is you yeah, try yeah. different approaches, throw shit on the wall. Eventually, you let a thousand flowers bloom. Eventually, you start to see things that work. And then the whole market just converges on what works. 
in a way, at the end of the Reliance Geo episode, affordability.com slash geo, I said the reason why I wasn't such a fan of the Reliance Geo Impact moments in Africa is because I prefer to just see different things happening, different small companies coming bottoms up. And I think innovation hubs are exactly that. I'm happy to learn about it. They're trying different things. I love the fact that they're also forming the cross-Africa alliances because the yeah. only disadvantage of bottoms-up innovation is there's a lot of replication. Everyone is replicating the same things. You're like, oh, you don't have to start from scratch each time. So it's sort of like the best of both worlds. I agree with Bankley 100% as they need some funding slash business model breakthrough. Just dependency on corporate donors. It's fine. It's worked, but it's just potentially risky when those companies start to change their focus and change their priority. And as I was thinking about the business model breakthrough, I don't, I don't have any silver bullet. I think, yes, the company's funding is should continue. I think the equity investments should definitely continue. I wonder if there's something about the companies that have money, instead of investing in innovation hubs, forming their own innovation hubs. Because I was very interested to, to understand. So MTN is funding a bunch of innovation hubs, but MTN would take it more seriously if it was their own innovation hub, quote unquote. Now, obviously, they don't have the expertise in managing innovation would hubs, you, but I just feel would like- you, Would you go start a business at an MTN innovation hub? If it was telco related and I was going to be selling services to MTN, hell yes. I don't know if you would you would you would you but but my point is like how how do you I think it's like trusting. My instinct would be like, how would I trust them to like you know do right by me, help me get my equity, keep my IPE? Um, yeah, like that's where I would I would get like stuck, right? So I, I agree with you, but if your business is to sell sell services to telcos. You want to tell code to be your partner because you want to easily sell services. They're much more likely to sign a deal with you if you're one of their yeah, companies. Yeah, but you, so I, I you think don't get a great deal. Like, I, I mean, there are all kinds yeah. of like downsides you think about it, which is like, yeah, yeah. They, okay. they know your economics and they just screw you over. So Bankoli raises a good point. Let me go through a bunch of ideas. I, I'm not sure if any of these are silver bullets. Like I said, I just think there is yeah. room for more experimentation is my broader point. Because yeah. even though there's experimentation, it seems a little bit narrow compared to what's going on in Europe and America. So another thing I was, I was curious to understand is I looked at the donors and the donors always seem to be large businesses. There were some really rich people, but it was most businesses, uh, mostly businesses. So I was curious to understand why isn't there a system where billionaires or rich Africans get more actively involved in this? Because eventually, obviously, it starts off as like a social thing. Yeah. But eventually, you can actually make money from it. There's some exceptions because Tony Illumilu uh, funded C-Hub, but it was hard to find uh, massive funding coming from, from individuals. So I think that's another angle. Obviously, it has to make sense. They have to get something out of it. I just feel I have a long list of things that could work here. Um, another thing is the governments. Now, the government has a pretty lousy track record of doing these things. I'm just curious to understand why there isn't more of a push for governments to do something like this. So I'll, I'll summarize my points. My points are more experimentation across um, companies' perspectives, government perspectives, much more equity investments, and just trying a lot more things to make the business model sustainable. The current reliance on um, corporate donors, I'm not a big fan of. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then just to summarize, I'm a big fan, like I said, anything that increases the likelihood of startups being successful, I think is a good thing. And I'm looking forward to hearing about more breakout successes. And I think even if a lot of my suggestions don't end up happening, just the fact that they're taking equity stakes in companies that are early, if any of those companies get big, it's like an endless loop that just keeps on recurring. Yeah. Now CC Hub has more money because they have a unicorn. They invest in more unicorns and on and on. They just need the first one to hit and for them to go from there. So excited, wishing them the best. Super excited to learn about all these innovation hubs in Africa. Yeah, in the, best of luck in, to them. In the evergreen words of Speed Darlington, take risk and succeed. Um, <laughs> right, right. Cool. cool. Recommendations and small wins and open questions. Yeah, I can go. Um, so Do recommendations. It. So over the past week, there's a really quick read called Anatomy of a Swipe. Um, huh. If you've ever been curious about payments, wondered what's special about the different players and ecosystem do, how they make money, I think I would recommend this book. Many people have questions like, I had a friend reach out to me. He's like, what is Stripe? What do they do? And I was like, oh, let me tell you. You know, I read this book. Um, <laughs> That's the wrong person. No, but 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 the, the truth the truth is there are different players in the ecosystem: issuer, acquirer, issuer, processor, acquirer, processor, and Stripe or PayPal or Marketa, and different stuff that do different things. And it's not intuitive mm -hmm. how the entire system works, how they integrate Definitely with each not. other, what the different margins are, what the fees are, how they work. Read this book, you start to know what you don't know, which is great. Um, but it's a good summary and a good expl expl explanation. And it makes me wonder uh, how I draw a similar map for how payments work in Nigeria. Because some parts are similar and some parts are different. Um, yeah. Similar in like same, same services, but different names. 
but some parts are different primarily because we don't have for example ACH we don't need ACH mm-hmm. our, our clearances instant and things like that right but it's, it was a very fascinating book I read I'll, I'll put a link to it in the show notes if you're interested please, in please do I would love to do a podcast episode about that the problem is it's very visual in nature it's almost better as an article or a video it's hard to yeah. to do it but maybe something in the future yeah. just hard to, to land the flow the right way with words it's interesting I read it on my Kindle and I ordered the physical book as well like it was that good I first read it on my Kindle and I was like oh yeah I'm gonna need to see these diagrams on a bigger screen and like <laughs> annotate them and whatnot so that was good yeah um, wow. what other recommendation um, small wins so oh, oh no let, let me give my recommendations oh, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll flip it okay, okay. so my, my recommendations I think you're gonna love this this is actually when I was reading this book I thought oh Bankley, you're gonna love this book so it's called The Psychology of Money Right, I've, and have I heard about it? I it, think I have. It's it's a uh, the tagline is timeless lessons on wealth, greed, and happiness, and it's it's by Morgan Housel. And Morgan oh, yeah. Housel is is pretty famous in uh, finance circles, uh, Motley Fool, and he's also a New York uh, writer, uh, New York Times writer. And the book to me was fascinating because it's not most finance books talk about okay. Uh, earn more money, save more money, invest in this. It's more about the psychology of it and why people act in certain ways and how to understand the emotional aspect of finance. So highly, highly recommended. I'll post the link in the show notes. I'll also link to the Reddit group, um, the Reddit post. Someone posted a summary of the book, which as soon as I read the summary, I'm like, I have to buy this book. So if you're not going to buy the book, uh, check out the Reddit post and see if you're interested in, in the summary. It's it's really really good. Bankole, highly recommended for you. And then why? Because I like money, or because I don't have money? Because I want to have money? Tell me, tell me what exactly you see in my personality that makes you go, "This is a good book for you." Because you're a finance person, you okay. like it. It's it's about personal finance and also a little bit of corporate finance. So right up your alley. That was a trap, and, and you passed. Yeah, I always always pass. So <laughs> the second thing, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. I read this article uh, by uh, Sajit Pai, and Sajit Pai is a pretty famous uh, Indian writer. And specifically, the, the title is Personal Information Management Assistance. So he's calling them PIMAs. So, so what's the context here? The context is he says today, a bunch of execs and higher income people, they have administrative assistance. And the administrative assistance, they help them schedule meetings, yada, yada, yada. Some of them also have chief of staffs. And chief of staffs help them manage higher level things mm-hmm. than assistance, whatever higher level means. Help them figure out their work, whatever, whatever. He says, oh, he thinks the third category of assistance is also super helpful. And get this. So he says PMS, personal information management assistance. What would they do? They would read and listen to high quality materials that the execs don't have a time to, to get to, such as podcasts, articles, books. And then they would summarize and present the salient points to the execs. I'm like, I love this idea. It's because... Every time I'm like, I have so many articles to read. Why can't someone just summarize them? But then I was like, oh, is this sort of like not going no. to the gym? I've been, nodding my, I've been nodding my head the same, like just nodding my head. Like, uh, yeah, I, so I, I just decided to voice my disapproval. So I'm going to add a link to the show. I think it's a brilliant idea. I don't know how it's going to work in practice, but I, I, I like the thought of it. I completely disagree. Having an opinion and learning takes work and it takes effort and it takes detachment and it takes focus. And the things I try to tell you that is a shortcut to it, or you can do it like in 10 minutes and 25 minutes, like a well-written book, there's, there's concepts that are too long than they need to be. That's a bad article, right? Summarize the bad article for me. If you write a good article with a meaty topic, why would you want to summarize it? Okay, but, but you're missing two things. First of all, you can get a person to only do curation. So you could still, you could just say, oh, I'm interested in tech, finance, and Africa. And they could be like, these are the six things to read. So that's the first thing. They don't have to summarize it. They could just curate it for you. Because curation itself takes a lot of time. The second thing is, even in the summarization, they can tell you for this piece, there's no point in me summarizing. You need to read the whole thing. It's that good. Half of what I read, even though I, ha- I have a really high bar, some of them really are too long. They don't get to the point. So I agree with you, but I think you're missing those two things. They can only do curation or they could tell you some things don't need to be summarized, yeah. which is still useful. Maybe, it's good, it's good yeah. to know what needs to be summarized, what doesn't need to be summarized. I mean, if you're Jamie Dimon, your hour of your time is probably worth $100,000, right? So might as well um, use the hour yeah. in the best way possible. Not for me. Yeah. Okay, not for Bonfilly, but I'm super... It doesn't exist yet, but I'm going to do a lot of research to figure that out. So that's my recommendation. Hard pass. Those two. Okay, small wins. Uh, small win. Um, so two things. One is um, over the past week and a half or so, the air quality in Seattle has been really terrible. And it cleared mm. up yesterday. And I haven't taken a walk yet, but yesterday I took a long drive. and listened oh, to a bunch of podcasts. Sweet. And it was just beautiful. The weather's great. Um I mean, the weather's good for Seattle. Like, it's cloudy, it's drizzling, perfect. Um, it's gray. Um, I think that was, like, a good thing. I'm going to go out and play basketball outside today. 
it's going to be. Mm. I think just having not been able to do that for a while, I think that's a, I don't even think that's a small, I think that's a big win. Like the weather's great. I can get out. I can exercise again. I'm excited for that one. Really excited for that one. Right. Uh, my small win is I experimented playing Stadia games with my partner. Basically, we're trying to find uh, local co-op games that she and I could play together. Because I haven't played video games in mm-hmm. 13, 15 years. And we're like, oh, this would be a funny, a good experiment for couples. So we ended up playing a bunch of games. Spirit Fair, The Turing Tests, and on, the third on, one. On Stadia? On Stadia. Oh, shoot. I got to so try that. We, we played those games. You have Stadia? Actually, you have Stadia? Add me on Stadia, bro. I'll, I'll add you. <laughs> I have, I'm on Stadia. So, so uh, it was actually quite fun. I got addicted to some of those games, so I don't know if I would recommend Put it. Put links in the games. A, I got to try them out. I would add links in the show notes. It was It's it's a fun thing to do with your partner because you guys are talking shit. You're arguing. It was cool. Um, It's funny. Some of the games, the difficulty level to get in is so high that even I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to play this. But overall, highly recommended. Um, just try not to get addicted like I did. So I don't know if I'm going to continue the experiments, but it was fun while we did it. Let me, let me, what's, what, what's the name of the games again? I'm trying to find uh, The Turing Test and Spirit Fair. S-P-I-R-I-T. So Spirit, yeah. F-A-R-E-R. Nice. Brilliant game. It's, it's, the Spirit Fair is actually a very advanced game. It's sort of like, it's a local co-op. You guys go on an adventure together mm-hmm. and it's a story about like helping people cope with dying. So it's actually very deep and serious. Can you, but play, also with, a lot can of you play with one controller? Yes, you can play one control. The other person will use the mouse and keyboard. Interesting. I got to try it out. All yeah. right. Sort it out. Good. Yeah. So done. Um, yeah. And we're trying a new segment. Yes. Uh, you want to talk about the new yeah, segment? So yes. I think one thing we're trying is one of the one of the questions that come out of the episode and seeing like, what, are the, what does the audience think? I think open questions. One of the things that I'm wondering about is we talked a bit about different business models here for hubs. And to be fair to the hubs, they, they, they do everything and they try all these things. I wonder which ones you think work are sort of the biggest lever. Do you think it would be something like Entrepreneur First going after the entrepreneurs who are currently working in corporate and giving them a bunch of money to quit and explore? Or do you think it has to be something like, let's set up a hub, let's set up something like YC, and let's like put a lot of capital on our biggest, surest bets. And that mm. that creates wealth that spurs the ecosystem. It's The right answer would likely be both, but I'm curious as to where people lie either way. If you have thoughts, email us. Love that. I have a very similar open question. The open question I have is, we focused most of this episode talking about entrepreneurship, independent entrepreneurship, but we also said there are two other types. There's corporate innovation and there's government innovation. If you have any smart ideas about how government's innovation hubs, government's innovation centers can be more successful or business models that you think of work for those, please send it to us. And the same thing for the corporate innovation hubs. Are there any examples of large African tech companies having successful innovation hubs that the companies are managing or starting. Yeah, um, It was hard to find those two categories. That's why we didn't spend a lot of time on that. So please send us examples or business models to work in those two categories. Yeah. Infodapperability.com. Please do. Please do. We'd love to hear Boom. from you. So cool. Yeah. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, topics you'd like to hear, or just want to say hello, please email info at Thanks.